0: Welcome to Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. Welcome to another podcast episode of Merkaba Chakras. I'm your host, Vaughn Galt, and I'm going to continue the COVID series of investigating the information that is not being reported by the major news stations and a lot of the big tech firms and seeing what is the information that is so suppressed that they do not want majority of the world and the u s population to see, so I've done a little bit digging you guys, and I found even more information um, directly. From the FDA government websites with regards to the information on the efficacy and the safety or lack of safety in the mRNA COVID vaccines and also information on understanding how we got here in terms of the suppression by the FDA and the CDC, according to their own EUA's emergency authorizations of repurpose cheap existing drugs and moving those aside for an experimental mRNA vaccine by Pfizer, which led the way to many others with the same ingredient so this is going to be very very interesting it's another one of the follow along with me series and we're going to look at the actual evidence from government websites and see what it is that we are not being told and then we can make the decision for ourselves what we want to do So if you are watching this episode on my newest channel, Rockfin R-O-K-F-I-N, that is a subscription channel. And all of my Merkaba Chakras channel will be there exclusively for seven days. So if you want to get ahead of the curve, get all the information, be the first to get the, the boost of energy and information from source and from the materials that I go over, uh, regarding this channel of Makaba chakras go to rockfin.com and make a quick subscription It's very affordable and with that quick subscription you get access to not only Makaba chakras but you get access to all of the free thinking media uncensored um, unfiltered uh, information from all over the place and as a Buddhist, I always say it's good to see the information from both sides so that you can make all the inf- all the informed decision without being so biased to one side versus another. And then by seeing everything that's presented, then you can make an informed decision in terms of what next best experience you want to manifest in the matrix for your next best um of source within so um, Rockfin, rock you guys go there and then if you are watching this on youtube uh this is again another trailer episode so go down below to the description and it will have links to um all of the other sites us outside of youtube in which you can watch the full video but remember if you want first pickings to see all the exclusive content before everybody else rockfin.com is where you'll get first insight into all the material from Akaba chakras then it will be put out for all of the rest of um, the different media platforms and also the audio platforms as well the the 65 different podcast sites so if you're on youtube i will see See you there in all those other sites. Um, If you are listening to this on Rockfin or you're listening to this after the seven day exclusive on Rockfin on the other video sharing platforms that I am on, or you are listening to this on any of the 65 podcast platforms in which the audio is played on, this presentation will go uninterrupted. Now, all the links that I go over, um, so you can get all those FDA um, documents and all of the information is in the description as well. So with that, let's get started. Okay, so um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, we're gonna do kind of a follow along here. Okay. So the first thing you guys are seeing is this document. And I pulled up these documents already. And um, when you look, when you go through the description, you click on the documents to kind of go through and read the articles and kind of get more in-depth coverage of what is being discussed. Um, if for whatever reason you are having a hard time getting the article, just go to DuckDuckGo search engine. Don't go to Google because you're not going to get... Um, unbiased information go to duck go and just type in the topic of each of the articles in which I am going to be covering and it will be pulled up on the search engines and there are literally a lot of various articles from different sources all over the world covering the same content that I'm covering in these pieces that I brought up so um this first one well what I'm going to do is explain kind of the timeline of what got us to the mRNA vaccine uh, program uh, that is kind of being pushed down everybody else. So um, the first one, this one is an article of, and this is back in April 2020, and this is after, well, most of... um, like the first couple months of 2020 when they were starting to see some COVID-19 cases, okay, in in the hospitals, in the ICU. And literally this article goes over how thousands of doctors, yes, hydrocortiquin works against the Wuhan coronavirus. So the Wuhan version of COVID-19. So um, hydroxychloroquine is... A repurposed drug is very cheap. It's existing. They've been using it for a long time. And um, when the early cases of COVID-19 came out, doctors were practicing medicine. They were allowed to practice medicine without um, being bullied or repressed or having the medical license um, revoked. So not that what is going on in 2021 um, with the heavy censorship. But they were practicing and they were pretty much throwing everything they could, according to all of the articles um, at this time, at severe hospitalizations for COVID-19. And um, hydroxychloroquine was one of them that thousands of doctors were using and they were finding great success if applied early on. So uh, this, I'm just going to kind of scan over because The basic gist of it is that thousands of doctors from New York, to New Jersey, from around the world uh, were saying that they were getting really, really great results with hydroxychloroquine. Um, Right here, it it says that of the 6,227 physicians surveyed in 30 countries, 37% rated hydroxychloroquine, the most effective therapy for combating potentially deadly illness according to the results released on Thursday. And that this is regarding COVID-19 back in April of 2020 after a couple months of this um, going around. And even even further in that statement, the medicine was mostly widely used in Spain where 72% a physician said they had prescribed it. Okay, so that's the, that's the short article. I'm not going to read it, but the whole point is that, and you can literally go to DuckDuckGo and look up um, do- doctors, Dr. Quinn, and the effectiveness on COVID-19. And you're going to get dozens and dozens of these exact same, same type of stories from that time. So that was established early on, okay? And the controversy against hydroxychloroquine was because um, Donald Trump, the former president of the United States at the time, who was not very popular for about half the country, um, really touted it as a really good um, option for COVID-19. And um, because in the United States, when it comes to politics, many people in the United States are very polarizing and they very much identify their own identity to the point of cognitive dissonance to any information that could help save their life uh, regarding politics. So they make medical um, issues like the COVID-19 pandemic and ways to treat it a political thing, whereas um, it should never be political. It should be Does it work? Does it not work, et cetera? So that's a whole different topic um, that many, many doctors around the world have been discussing as a life lesson around this pandemic. But anyways, um, in short, hydroxychloroquine seemed to have worked early on when the pandemics first started before the lockdowns and thousands of doctors were saying it, it worked. So let's go to the next article. So this one was on March 28, 2020. And basically, um, in, in the first month of 2020, the Food and Drug Administration in the US approved hydroxychloroquine uh, because of its effectiveness and because of the thousands of doctors practicing medicine and applying it early on to severe hospitalized COVID-19 patients that um, they diagnose were finding success and a high percentage of success in their um, patients that the Food and Drug Administration approved it for emergency use authorization. So hospitals were able to use hydroxychloroquine on all their COVID-19 patients, um, and it was a viable option, and they were finding great success. However, as you can see in this document by the Food and Drug Administration, um, Dr. Rick Bright, PhD, who is a director at the time of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, Office of Assistant, Secretary of Preparedness and Response, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, authorized the revoking of the EU, EUA use of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and they use the criteria for that. They use... That, they use um, A study which if you watch enough censored doctors talking about this they all talk about the same study the study was retracted uh, because it wasn't um, it wasn't well done with the methodologies that they do to make sure that the results are um, unbiased and clear but the FDA used that outdated retracted study to advocate for revoking hydroxychloroquine for EUA use for the public. So now, as of March 28, 2020, when the pandemic started, they had hydroxychloroquine finding great success. A couple months later, retracted. All right, so that's the timeline. So let's go to the next one. So the next one is, is, in May 2020, the Food and Drug Administration authorized a new um, medication to apply to severely hospitalized COVID cases in the United States. And um, the, what happens with the United States, which is unique, is that the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, the NIH, all the organizations here in the United States, a lot of countries worldwide mirror the information that they see here. And so what happens in, in the United States actually has influence in, in how other countries like Israel, for example, um, model their ministry of health and advocacy for uh, you know, different remedies as well. So um, there should be more care to make sure that things are safe and effective. But in May 2020, the FDA authorized Remdesivir for emergency use authorization. And um, so here is the, the actual government document that goes over um, Remdesivir. So now from here on out, If you are hospitalized uh, for COVID in the hospital and you are a severe case, they're going to prescribe you not hydroxychloroquine, but they're going to be prescribing you remdesivir. Okay. Now, I'm going to close that. Here's another government document from the FDA about the EUA use for remdesivir. Okay. Okay. Scan through; you can kind of see this is pretty basic language. Yeah, they got EUA used for SARS CoV two, et cetera, et cetera. So you you can see the document here, and the links are in there if you guys want to read the dry language on just kind of um, administration and the authorization details. So there's the FDA document for Remdesivir. Now, what's interesting with Remdesivir is. a month before, around a month before, they authorized remdesivir in May. Um, in April 2020, remdesivir trials had finished their clinical trials. So the FDA seems to be only be approving one EUA at a time. So the first they approved hydroxychloroquine, people were getting better. people were um, There was a high success rate. And then... All of a sudden, they revoked it in March, and a month later, in April, uh, remdesivir, the tri- the clinical trials finished, and the information on the when Desivir clinical trials actually uh, at the time showed that, um, and I'll put it in the description, it showed that the people who got remdesivir who had a severe case of COVID uh, did not... Successfully recover. And the people who also got the placebo also did not successfully recover. So it didn't really make a difference. Um, unlike hydroxychloroquine, which they did recover, and there's a high percentage of them recovering. But um, so in April 2020, Remdesivir finished the trials. And then the next month in May, the FDA authorized Remdesivir. So, if the clinical trials for remdesivir didn't show that much more success than the hydroxychloroquine, uh, you you can kind of question why would they do that. But here's what they found uh, with remdesivir. So this is the University of Minnesota, and you guys can go to DuckDuckGo and you guys can look for literally hundreds of thousands of these articles from different university studies. And basically, remdesivir. This was a couple months later, and they were finding they were trying they were trying remdesivir on patients in the hospital um, and they were finding pretty much that it was not as successful um, as they had hoped and is matching up with the clinical trial data. Um, but so this title is remdesivir of scant benefit and hospitalized COVID patient study finds. And this is in August of 2020. So after about a couple months of um, usage in the market, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to kind of grow, go down. So here's I'm going to here is uh, I'm going to read a couple of this. So adverse events and clinical outcomes. Any differences between the groups receiving remdesivir versus the standard care in duration of supplemental oxygen or hospitalization were not significant. Averse events which is like life-threatening issues, um, occur in 51% of patients in the five-day remdesivir group, 59% in the 10-day remdesivir group, and 47% in the standard care group. So about neck and neck, whether you administer remdesivir or you don't administer remdesivir doesn't make a difference. Nausea was common in the groups receiving rindesivir than in those receiving standard care, um, as were low blood potassium levels and headache. Okay. I go down. So here here is a here's a quote. Among patients with moderate COVID 19, those randomized to a 10 day course of remdesivir did not have a statistically significant difference in clinical status compared with standard care at 11 days after initiation of treatment. Patients random di- randomized to a five day course of remdesivir had a statistically significant difference in clinical studies compared to standard care, but the difference was of uncertain importance, which means it it didn't make that much difference. So And you guys can kind of scroll down and they kind of talk about the different studies that they really didn't find much difference um, with it, except for... When people are given remdesivir, they had a higher percentage of um, fatalities and severe life threatening issues that could lead to fatalities than compared to people who just had natural, um, like natural care, where they didn't administer remdesivir. So, We'll go, I'll go over some of these percentages in terms of what they found. Um, the most common underlying conditions were high blood pressure, 54.9%, diabetes, 13.7%, ischemic heart disease, 13.7%, and moderate kidney failure, 7.8%. 20 patients completed 10 days of remdesivir treatment and 5, 20%, died of COVID 19 infection at a medium of five days after starting the therapy. Um, At final follow up, 38 patients, 74.5, had died. 9, 17.6%, had been released from the hospital and 4, 7.8%, remained hospitalized but no longer needed mechanical ventilation. So uh, so in the in the small studies where they were doing studies, so they did the studies of remdesivir, um, short studies of remdesivir before they got the EUA approval from the F- FDA. And it kind of showed that it was really not making much of a difference. Um, in fact, it was showing that a little bit more of people who got the remdesivir applied uh, had mortality or had, or had severe adverse reactions that could lead to um, I- injury or mortality than the people who didn't have it applied. But in this small study, they found that um, 74.5% had died after being applied remdesivir. So, um, so the EUA approved a drug, which going into it did not find success, but they still approved it. And then in the use of It's in the market when only doctors were able to prescribe remdesivir for severe hospitalized COVID-19 patients in the course of 2020 until the mRNA vaccine came through, people were giving remdesivir that had a high percentage of causing mortality or causing complications that could lead to injury. So all of those deaths... In 2020, those 600,000 deaths or numbers that keeps being thrown around in the United States, a majority of them, according to this information in the clinical trials, and then also all the doctors, the censored doctors that were talking about this, a majority of those 600,000 could have been saved had they not been giving remdesivir that had a high percentage of not working. And actually increasing the mortality rate. So that's what was going on. That was that's the story of remdesivir. So let's see another one. Here's another one. N- News Medical Life Science. Um, this is by Doctor Ligi Thomas. Okay, and, and she talks about this is in June twenty Twenty-three, twenty-one. So this is even more time has elapsed um, and more studies have been done past the clinical trials for remdesivir for EUA use by the FDA uh, in the first couple months in the hospitals using using it all across the country finding it's not really any different from the clinical trials data that show that it really didn't show much of an improvement, if anything, it kind of helped kind of accelerate mortality, um, and here we are a whole year later in June, 23, and still going over um, information about the use of remdesivir and finding that just like this title says, study finds no evidence of remdesivir's benefit in severe COVID-19 patients. And you can kind of go through um, and you can kind of read the information So, and this is the information that is approved by the FDA, approved by the CDC, the WHO approves it. Um, But it makes you wonder, are they really reading the studies? Because why would you recommend something that is not going to be effective? If anything, it's going to help accelerate mortality. So... um, So what were the findings? I always go to the conclusions because I don't want to, I know you guys can read. So what were the findings? Both groups were given a standard of care treatment. However, the remdesivir group was more often given to younger patients who did not have severe underlying illnesses and were not immediately admitted to the intensive care unit. The patients who received remdesivir were more likely to be obese and were more likely to also receive Dexamethasone or antibiotics. As compared to controls, 94% of the remdesivir group were on dexamethasone. Similarly, 90% of the patients in the remdesivir group were also administered antibiotics, which was comparable to 80% of the patients in the control group. Since about 10% of the patients receive at least two types of steroids, The differential use of steroids influenced the difference in outcomes between the two groups. Okay. About 62 of the patients had viral pneumonia, whereas over a tenth of these patients had bacterial pneumonia. Viral pneumonia was more frequent in the remdesivir group and accounted for 75% in this group, which was comparable to 58% of controls who also experienced this complication of COVID-19. So they're finding the same exact thing as they found in the clinicaltrials.gov website for the remdesivir study. So just go to clinicaltrials.gov. If you watch some of the other COVID series, you'll kind of have some of these these, uh, sites memorized. But clinicaltrials.gov, just type in remdesivir, COVID-19 trials, and you'll find the trial. And it basically kind of showed that it didn't make much of a difference. But in more use of it um, across the country, after over a year of it being um, used in the hospitals, again, they're saying that they, that in the remdesivir group, uh, 75% of the patients in this group had uh, pneumonia, had developed pneumonia, whereas the group that did not get remdesivir they only got 58% had developed pneumonia. So adding remdesivir to COVID-19 patients in the hospital, according to the clinical trials uh, data and according to many other um, case studies at different hospitals, they found that it actually accelerated the growth of pneumonia in these severe COVID-19 hospitalizations. The The incidences of elevated blood sugars blood sugar levels acute kidney failure and amine, an, anemia and acute respiratory distress syndrome were similar in both patient groups notably hyperglycemia was twice as common in the remdesivir group about 18% so and again when they give remdesivir according to the FDA the FDA said everybody for your hospitalizations for COVID-19, you prescribe remdesivir. Fauci keeps on saying on TV, prescribe remdesivir, prescribe remdesivir. And what is it doing? According to many other, other case studies, they found that um, it was twice as common in the remdesivir group, about 18% of them, to have kidney failure, anemia Acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, they found that 75% of, of the patients in this remdesivir group created pneumonia symptoms. Basically, pneumonia is basically uh, fluid in your lungs filling up to the point that you have no space to breathe because it's it's taken over your whole lungs. There's no space to breathe. Um, whereas it's only 58% in the control group. So even a year later when... <laughs> hospitals are still administering remdesivir, it is showing um, no significant reduction in deaths. So you guys can kind of go over the article, but I'm just giving you a quick synopsis of it. Um, again, I always say, when you go down to the bottom, look at the journal reference, and there's always a link there to go to even more medical information on where they get the data um, and analysis for the, the trial. So a year later, Same information. Okay, so that's what happened. Um, So from May 2020 until basically December, December or January 2021, hospitals were administering remdesivir and accelerating the death of severe COVID-19 patients um, who were hospitalized by giving them a drug that was authorized by the FDA to not be successful, whereas the drug. Before that they authorized that they took off market as a prescription for hospitals to use hydroxychloroquine was taken off mark off market and off the recommendation for EUA use which did show um, very very high percentage of success so not not a very not a very good um, track record so far let's let's see what happens next so next on the timeline is um In 2020, and I think also in August, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey was also talking about this as well, because he represents um, thousands of doctors that worked in various uh, trials and funneled up information about what they were seeing when they were practicing medicine and using other treatment options like ivermectin to um, severe cases of COVID-19 in the hospital. And um, this video right here is a clip of Dr. Pierre Corey's U.S. Senate hearing uh, meeting back in December, talking about ivermectin. And uh, in a previous episode in the COVID series that I did, uh, I actually showed this video. But um, I'll add this video into the clip as well. But in short, basically, Dr. Pierre Corey stood in front of the U.S. Senate representing um, thousands of doctors worldwide to say that they've been using ivermectin on severe COVID-19 patients. And they found that ivermectin is 100% cure for COVID-19. Okay, so if it's administered early, outpatient in the hospital or at home, early that it has a 100% cure for COVID-19 and people will not die um, and they will recover and that it should be approved for use for everybody um, not just when you go into the the hospital so no we'll watch that.
1: Our next witness is here in person Dr. Pierre Corey Dr. Corey is the former Associate Professor in Chief of the Critical Care Service and Medical Director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin and recently joined the ICU service at Aurora St. Luke Medical Center in Milwaukee. He is board certified in critical medicine, <clears throat> pulmonary diseases, and internal medicine. Dr. Corey has traveled across multiple states in the U.S. to care for COVID-19 patients throughout the pandemic. He is also the president of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance a nonprofit organization of critical care specialists led by Professor Paul Merrick, whose mission over the last nine months has focused on the research and development of effective treatment protocols for COVID-19 using repurposed drugs. He received his MD from St. George's University School of Medicine. And I'll I'll only add that uh, we added Dr. Corey very late to our, I think, hearing in May, uh, because I'd heard of uh, his development of, I guess, anti-inflammatory steroids, in critical care on COVID, and Dr. Corey, I have to tell you, I've had doctors come up to me and thank me for holding that hearing where they listened to you change their thinking. They believe they've saved their patients' lives because of your testimony at that hearing. I I hope your testimony will be as impactful today. Dr. Corey.
2: Senator, thank you, and and thank you for uh, holding this hearing. I just want to start out. I didn't think I'd have to say this, but I want to register my offense at the ranking member's opening statement. I was discredited as a politician. I am a physician and a man of science. I have done nothing, nothing, but commit myself to scientific truth and the care of patients. And, and to hear that I'm here because of a political angle, I am not a politician. I'm a physician. I want to start out by saying that I'm not speaking as an individual I'm speaking on behalf of the organization that I'm a part of. We are a group of some of the most highly published physicians in the world. We have near 2000 peer-reviewed publications among us. Led by Dr. Prof- uh, Professor Paul Marik, who is our intellectual leader, we came together early on in the pandemic and all we have sought is to review the world's literature on every facet of this disease trying to develop effective protocols. You just mentioned that I was here in May and I touted, I wouldn't say touted, I recommended that it was critical that we use corticosteroids in this disease when all of the national and international healthcare organizations said we cannot use those. That turned out to be a life-saving recommendation. I am here again today with a new recommendation. In the last nine months, in our review of all of the literature as a group, <clears throat> again we are some of the most highly published physicians in our specialty, and the world. We have done nothing but try to figure out how to identify a repurposed and available drug to treat this illness. We have now come to the conclusion, after nine months, and I I have to point out I am severely troubled by the fact that the NIH, the FDA, and the CDC, I do not know of any task force that was assigned or compiled to review repurposed drugs in an attempt to treat this disease. Everything has been about novel and or expensive pharmaceutically engineered drugs, things like tocilizumab and rendesivir and monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. We have 100 years of medicine development. We know we are expert in all the medicines we use, and I do not know of a task force that has been focused on repurposed drugs. I will tell you that my group and our organization, I will say that we have filled that void. We, that is all we have done is focus on the things we know and things we do. And I'm here to tell you, Dr. Ryder, he just presented. It was one, he has one study of the many that I want to talk about. And I want to talk about that we have a solution to this crisis. There is a drug that is proving to be of miraculous impact. And when I say miracle, I do not use that term lightly. And I don't want to be sensationalized when I say that. That is a scientific recommendation based on mountains of data that has emerged in the last three months. When I am told, and I just had to hear this in the opening sentence, that we are touting things that are not, FDA or NIH recommended let me be clear the NIH their recommendation on ivermectin which is to not use it outside of controlled trials is from august 27th we are now in december this is three to four months later mountains of data have emerged from all from many centers and countries around the world showing the miraculous effectiveness of ivermectin it basically obliterates transmission of this. If you take it, you will not get sick. I want to briefly summarize the data. My manuscript, again, published by some of the the, the most... We have contributed more to the medical knowledge of our specialty in our careers than, than anyone else can claim as a group. And our manuscript, which was posted on Medicine Preprint Server, details all of this evidence. I want to briefly summarize it. Number one, we have evidence that ivermectin is effective not only in prophylaxis, in the prevention. If you take it, you will not get sick. We just came across a trial last night from Argentina by the lead investigator of ivermectin in Argentina, Dr. Hector Carvalho. They prophylaxed 800 healthcare workers. Not one got sick. In the 400 that they didn't prophylax with ivermectin, 58% got sick. 237 of those 400 got sick. If you take it, you will not get sick. It has immense and potent antiviral activity. We know that from the first study in Monash, it has made the bench to the bedside. Prophylaxis, we now have four large randomized controlled trials totaling over 1,500 patients, each trial showing that as a prophylaxis agent, it is immensely effective. You will not get sick. You will be protected from getting ill if you take it. In early outpatient treatment, we have three randomized control trials and multiple observation as well as case series showing that if you take ivermectin, the need for hospitalization and death will decrease. The most profound evidence we have is in the hospitalized patients. We have four randomized control trials there, Multiple observation trials all showing the same thing. You will not die, or you will die at much, much, much lower rates. Statistically significant, large magnitude results if you take ivermectin. It is proving to be a wonder drug. It has already won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2015 for its impacts on global health in the eradication of parasitic diseases. It is proving to be an immensely powerful antiviral and anti-inflammatory agent. It is critical for its use in this disease. We, again, stand by our manuscript. It is a scientific manuscript. It's been submitted for peer review, but please recognize peer review takes time. It takes months. We do not have months. We have 100,000 patients in the hospital right now dying. I'm a lung specialist. I'm an ICU specialist. I've cared for more dying COVID patients than anyone can imagine. They're dying because they can't breathe. They can't breathe. They're on high-level oxygen delivery devices. They're on non-invasive ventilators and or they're sedated and paralyzed and attached to mechanical ventilators that breathe for them. And I watch them every day. They die. By the time they get me in the ICU, they're already dying. They're almost impossible to recover. Early treatment is key. We need to offload the hospitals. We are tired. I can't keep doing this. If you look at my manuscript and if I have to go back to work next week, any further deaths are going to be needless deaths, and I cannot be traumatized by that. I cannot keep caring for patients when I know that they could have been saved with earlier treatment, and that drug that will treat them and prevent the hospitalization is ivermectin. This is I am here today. I'm calling to action. The NIH, their last recommendation was August 27th. August 27th. I want to be clear. I am not here as a politician or a dramatist or or sensationalizing what I'm recommending. I'm going to be very clear and very simple. All I ask is for the NIH to review our data that we've compiled of all of the emerging data. We have almost 30 studies. Everyone is reliably and reproducibly positive, showing the dramatic impacts of ivermectin. Please, I'm just asking that they review our manuscript. It is a serious manuscript by serious highly experienced physicians and researchers. We, we have, I cannot call on more credibility than we have. We're not just a a random doctor who's saying that we have a cure. I don't want to say I have a cure. I'm just asking review our data. We have immense amounts of data to show that Ivermectin must be implemented and implemented now. Senator, the last thing I want to say is, you know, who's dying here? It's, it's our African-American and Latino and elderly. It's some of the most disadvantaged and impoverished members of our society. They are dying at higher rates than anyone else. It's the, most, it's, it's, it's the most severe discrepancy I've seen in my medical career. And we are responsible to protect those disadvantaged members. We have a special duty to provide countermeasures. The amount of evidence to show that ivermectin is life-saving and protective is so immense, and the drug is so safe. My colleagues have talked about it. It must be instituted and implemented. I am asking the NIH to review our data and come up with recommendations for society. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well, thank Dr. Corey, and I will, I will make you this guarantee that uh, before the day is out, we'll have a letter. First of all, we'll enter all your data into our hearing record, and then I'll have a letter to the NIH asking them to review it. Please okay? and, and hopefully, thank you. I'll have some Sanders join me in that.
0: Okay so um i hope you enjoyed that presentation of dr pierre Corey in front of the um us senate so there was no need for an experimental mrna vaccine and the vaccination program they already found cheap repurposed drugs that had been used for over 50 years for other things that actually work 100% of the time if administered early um to people suffering Early signs of COVID nineteen before they get very very severe. So, um, but that was in des- in December, and they were telling people that um, before that. So, there's no need for the prop for the um, mRNA vaccine, experimental vaccine. That when we're going to go look at the information, there's a lot of information there that, sh- that shows that it should never have been approved by the FDA. But according to the track record of the FDA, they're pretty much approving things that are not good for people. Um, And that's a factual statement according to the information we're looking at. That's not an opinion piece. So let's remove this. And so what happened after uh, Dr. Pierre Corey went to the US hearing and basically said, we have 100% recovery of COVID-19. Uh, If administered early, we're using ivermectin, which is like I think like seven cents per pill in some cases. Um, What happened? There was a slur campaign. The US Food and Drug Administration created a slur campaign uh, shortly afterwards, months afterwards. And here's one of the articles by the FDA's website. At why you should not use ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19 okay and this is after um, hundreds of studies and papers and doctors all over the world saying ivermectin works it works it cures people it works at home they don't have to go to the hospital if they're in the hospital it works as well um, administer it early before so that the body has time to uh, process the ivermectin in their body and clear out the the COVID nineteen. After all of that, the Food and Drug Administration started a slur campaign against ivermectin, and you can see here. Uh, it, you can you can see here in this article that um, they're they're saying the FDA has not approved ivermectin for use in treating or preventing COVID nineteen in humans. Ivermectin tablets are approved at very specific doses for some parasitic worms, and they're topical on the skin formations for head lice and skin conditions like rosacea. Um, Ivermectin is not an antiviral drug for treating viruses. And they kind of go on and on about, you know, it it not being approved, it's for animals, it's not for humans. So you can read the article from the FDA, but this is the slur campaign to discredit the use of ivermectin Um, So that people don't go out and buy ivermectin um, to have it as part of their normal cold and flu regimen at home. So if they get the normal cold and flu, whether it turns out to be COVID-19 or it turns out to be another case of the the flu, that if they start feeling severe symptoms such as a hard time breathing or, or chest pain, something more than the normal cold and flu that they typically get that they can go into the medicine cabinet and they can get ivermectin out of the medicine cabinet and that will help treat it early so that they can recover really they can recover quickly um, with the help of ivermectin which is what the doctors all over the world and what pierre cory was saying at the u.s senate work a hundred percent but according to the fda they're telling people don't listen to all that information we are and because of that, a lot of the major news stations and a lot of big tech firms like Facebook and and so forth, they they were suppressing the information. They were not reporting on it. They were suppressing it um, so that people don't know. Okay, so here is proof that the FDA was leading the charge in suppressing any information about the effectiveness of ivermectin against COVID-19. So let's go there. And here is another really, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, some families were um, so upset that hospitals were not going to, they had heard about ivermectin and they had asked, uh, The hospital doctors to prescribe it to treat um, their family members and the doctors and the hospitals were refusing to treat um, patients if it went against the hospital code of don't use ivermectin only use the authorized stuff that we have which the authorized stuff is remdesivir um, which is shown to not be helpful so here's an example of some of those cases, uh, the court cases. New York courts ordered hospitals to use COVID cure ivermectin against FDA's misleading advice. And you all saw what the misleading advice was, which is don't use ivermectin. Um, and they won the battle. And um, these hospitals ended up being forced by the court to give ivermectin to these um patients of these families, and um, as, as you read them, many of them did survive because they had early ivermectin applied into, um, into the body in time for it to work against the symptoms of COVID-19. Okay, so I'm not going to read... Over um, all these articles, because I know you guys can read, but I'm just kind of summarizing the headlines so you get the basic point and the summary. Um, but, but in New York, some families did win court cases to make the hospitals uh, overlook the way uh, advice from the FDA and, and prescribe ivermectin, and it worked for them. So there's that. And here's another one on the um, suppression of ivermectin to the people. So in May of 2021, the Indian Bar Association, which is like the Association association of Lawyers in India, they sued the WHO, the World Health Organization's chief, chief scientist, for disinformation and suppression of ivermectin over promoting the mRNA vaccine okay um because they could have saved a lot of people who had severe cases of covid-19 at home or in the hospital if they were able to get ivermectin to them early so even in the united states remember even in the united states before the mrna vaccine came out they were prescribing remdesivir and they were preventing people from getting ivermectin and ivermectin has a 100% cure To COVID 19. So, those 600,000 or so um, COVID 19 deaths in 2020, a majority of them could have been cured and saved. So, the question is why was the FDA, if they found effective treatment options that are cheap and effective? Why are they suppressing it and doing slur campaigns against the medication that is more successful than the EUA use of the ones that they were pushing for for hospitals to use? That's the question. And that is why the um, Indian Bar Association, Association sued the huge chief scientist. So um, again, this article um, basically goes over how the Bar Association served a 51-page legal notice to Dr. Sumia Swaminathan. She's the chief scientist of the World Health Organization for her act of spreading disinformation and misguiding the people of India in order to fulfill her agenda. Okay, that's what she's being sued for as a member of WHO going along with the vaccine propaganda and the vaccine um, program for the mRNA vaccine and suppressing life-saving, cheap repurposed drugs that have a very high, if not 100% effective, effective rate against curing COVID-19 early on, if administered early on. So she's being sued for that. And the legal notice says that Dr. Swamina Swaminathan has been, quote, running a disinformation campaign against ivermectin by deliberate suppression of effectiveness of drug ivermectin as prophylaxis and for treatment of COVID-19, despite the existing the existence of large amounts of clinical data compiled and presented by esteemed, highly qualified, experienced medical doctors and scientists, and and in quotes, issuing statements in social media and mainstream media, thereby influencing the public against the use of ivermectin, and attacking the credibility of acclaimed. Bodies and institutions like ICMR and AIIMS, Delhi, which have included ivermectin in the National Guides for COVID-19 Management. And the notice is based on research and clinical trials carried out by the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance and the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Panel. These organizations have presented an enormous amount of data that strengthen the case for recommending ivermectin for the prevention and treatment of COVID 19. So, you guys can read all of that. I always recommend you when you're reading these links, if you see a hyperlink here, um, click on it. See that? I click on this hyperlink for the Indian Bar Association. And it goes to the Indian Bar Association's legal notice. So you can actually um, read the uh, read the lawsuit against the chief scientist of the WHO for disinformation against life-saving drugs like ivermectin uh, throughout the pandemic. for her agenda of um, pushing the unsafe... Um, mRNA vaccines onto the public okay so I'm going to actually put that copy that and I'm going to put that in the description for you guys so you guys have it Um, and you guys can read how she's getting sued and I'm sure other members of the WHO will be sued as well along with the FDA who will likely be sued for suppressing life-saving medication during the pandemic and promoting medication that like remdesivir that is not life-saving but actually detrimental so that those are the facts those are the facts it's not conspiracy these are actual facts Um, Okay, so this is going to be interesting. This, I'm actually going to go through this a little bit more. Um, This, so this happened on December 10, 2020. So um, this is like after Dr. Pierre Corey went over all the clinical data and recommendation that ivermectin will cure COVID-19 early on. They have been doing it for half half actually throughout the pandemic. Um, and found great results, and they've been sharing it. And there's no need for an experimental mRNA vaccine that has not been not gone through the full human trials, let alone successfully in the animal trials. But um, that got disregarded, and um, the FDA went on a briefing with Pfizer, BioNTech on their COVID-19 vaccine. So this is the The link is in the description, and I I recommend you print this out because this is going to be a very famous document. Um, It's also going to be the linchpin that the FJA has to respond to with, with regards to efficacy and safety to the public. But why did they disregard this information? So here is the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting. And the FDA briefing document. So I'm gonna kind of scroll through and I've highlighted some areas for you guys to see. Okay. And we're going to um. So we're going to go to page 15. All right. I'm gonna jump around a little bit. I'm gonna highlight some important stuff for you. Okay, the first thing. Page 15, um, evaluation of safety. So this is how they're going to evaluate safety. Now, remember in a previous COVID series episode, we went over the Pfizer internal document that went over the animal trials. And the animal trials showed that the luciferase, that's really what it's called, luciferase um, lipid nanoparticles, A majority of it clustered into uh, the spleen, the ovaries, a little bit to the liver and many of the the major organs, but a lot into the ovaries as well and the spleen. And it basically caused organ failure in the animal trials. Uh, The animal trials were not very successful. And so in order to understand the safety of the evaluation of safety, so this is figure one safety monitoring, and this is how they're going to monitor the safety uh, for severe adverse events, SAEs, in uh, vaccine trial recipients, okay? So you get the first dose, and 21 days later, you get the second dose. And then they're going to follow up here. They're going to follow you for about two years, okay? The active surveillance for potential COVID-19 symptoms are going to be done through telehealth and in-person visit or a nasal, nasal swab, Okay? So they expect that you're going to get COVID-19. Yeah, you're going to be a breakthrough case um, after you get the jab, after you get the vaccine. And actually in the animal, animal trials on the Pfizer document, it actually said that they all, all the participants got COVID-19. So they all expect them to um, become a breakthrough case because their body does create that spike protein in their body and that's how and that's what, what they identify as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 because it has a spike protein which um, in the data and the clinical trials is not healthy for people to have. So um, so but in terms of safety monitoring so they're going to do active surveillance and then seven days post-dose and then seven days after the second dose. Um, they did this uh, trial that that put into this briefing document um, at at least 6,000 subjects and at least 500 in each country. So for the first month post-dose, after the second dose, um, they're going to be monitoring all subjects for non-serious adverse reactions or adverse events. So non-serious meaning, you know, not life-threatening. So if you have an adverse reaction, it's not life threatening, like maybe like a, the colds or the the chills and stuff, but nothing life threatening, like a tumor on your neck, okay. And then um, for six months post second dose, they're going to be monitoring all the subjects for serious adverse events. So serious adverse events are life threatening, meaning some you develop a life threatening illness or injury to your body after the vaccination. Um, that will eventually lead to your death or eventually to um, a really injured lifestyle. So like handicap and, and so forth. So six months. Um, and then the last monitoring they're going to do is post two years. So two years after the second dose, they're going to monitor everybody. They're going to monitor all the subjects to see if there's any deaths or related SAEs, which is severe adverse events. So all the subjects that got the vaccine, they're gonna be monitoring if you had deaths or related SAEs. Now in the animal trials, majority did have severe adverse events. The majority of them did die within two years. But because we don't have two years of data On the human trials, and I will go over this actual document that tells you how long they actually observed the trial participants, and how much, how many months of data was actually um, gathered before they rolled it up, put it in this briefing document, and then sent it to the FDA and pitched it. And the FDA FDA said, "Yes, that sounds healthy and safe. Let's do it." so that is the monitoring plan, okay? And they had to, when they did this, they had, the cutoff was November 20. That was the cutoff. So all the data that they had was before November 20. So if you guys remember, let's see, this so if you guys remember this document um, in a previous episode where I go over the spike protein that was patented. So um, this is the patent. So, and this is patented by um, by Pfizer. Okay. So it 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 shows the Pfizer document, um, US patent um, 637-222-4B1. Okay. And um, it is for the canine corona s gene which s stands for spike um protein so the s gene the spike protein the the spike gene in coronavirus pfizer extracted that from dogs because the coronavirus is common is a respiratory disease that is common in dogs they extracted that from canines the, S, the spike protein in coronavirus. And then Pfizer BioNTech patented and now owns the S gene, the spike gene that they extracted from the coronavirus version that affects dogs. And the question always was, how does the spike proge- protein coronavirus jump from an animal disease to a human disease because spike proteins are not normal as a disease that affects or shows up in humans. So how did it come from an animal to humans? And that was always the question that goes back on the the lab leak. um, Now it's a fact, but that was always a question. And if you looked at the episode that I went in terms of um, the COVID series where I go over the information about Professor Luc Montagier, um, the Nobel Prize winner for discovering and sequencing HIV. Um, he said that the spike protein, along with a lot of Indian re- uh, virologists and researchers in India who looked at the DNA as well, and said it's the spike protein of HIV in this COVID-19 um, coronavirus and It has been spliced together and lab-created, okay? And that's how it went from an animal to a human. That's how it jumped to human because it was lab-created and then somehow it got released to the wild in Wuhan. So, And the spike protein that jumped to human is patented by Pfizer back in April 16, 2002. No one ever patented the spike protein of coronavirus in any species, whether it's in dogs or humans or anything. No company ever thought to patent the coronavirus S gene, but Pfizer did. And ironically, Pfizer has a patent and Pfizer is the one asking for EUA approval with the U.S., Food and Drug Administration for the mRNA vaccine for, for um, COVID-19, which happens to be a respiratory disease in humans that is also a respiratory disease in canines. Do you see the parallels of where you tie those two together? It's a very straight line. And those are facts. Pfizer patents, the Corona S gene, no other company or people have ever thought to do that before, but they did that. And then somehow they have a vaccine that addresses the spike protein or the, in COVID-19, which is the identifier of COVID-19. They have the vaccine for the coronavirus of COVID-19. So how does the problem of coronavirus S gene jump from animals to becoming a respiratory disease in humans? It was spliced in the lab. And now all of a sudden, the company that owns the spike protein in canines has the vaccine for the coronavirus in humans. You see the parallel? Those are facts. Okay. So um, let's go back to the FDA document that was used to approve the mRNA vaccine and pushed on to the public. And so we're going back into this. So we're going to go to... um, page 14 now. I'm going to go to page 14. All Right. So this is very, very interesting. So page 14, I'm going to read to you the definitions. Okay. Secondary and primary. Okay. So um, according to the CDC, in the FDA document that was used to approve EUA approval for the Pfizer um, COVID vaccine, which, remember, Pfizer owns the, the spike protein, so they have to approve with them, and then it approves to be used for all the other brands that have the spike protein or the S gene in their vaccine that makes the S gene because of their vaccine. So, um, okay, so here it is. Um, I'm going to read this to you guys. This is definitions according to FDA, according to the CDC. For the primary efficacy endpoint, the case definition for a confirmed COVID-19 case was the presence of at least one of the following symptoms and a positive SARS-CoV-2 N-A-A-T within four days of the symptomatic period, all right? So this is the first definition of what constitutes a case of COVID-19 according to the FDA.gov briefing um, paperwork that Pfizer had given to the FDA to get approval for EUA. And this is according to the CDC's definition of what constitutes as a COVID-19 case. The first definition for a case of confirmed COVID-19 is that they have at least one of these symptoms and a positive SARS-CoV-NAT test within four days of the symptomatic period. So if you start getting feelings any one of these symptoms and you get a positive case test, you get positive in your test, then you have COVID-19 and you count as a case. So So here's one of the symptoms. You have a fever. You have new or increased cough. You have new or increased shortness of breath. You have the chills. You have new or increased muscle pain. You have new loss of taste or smell. You have a sore throat. You have diarrhea. And you have vomiting. OK, so basically cold and flu symptoms, with, which everybody is familiar with all over the world. You have any one of these early signs of cold and flu symptoms, and then you go get a PCR test. And there's a lot of controversy about the PCR test. Actually, the CDC removed the use, recommendation of using the CC, PCR test recently because when they run the swab through the cycles in the machine, um, they are running it um almost double or beyond the recommended amount and if you keep running it into higher and higher cycles you can almost find anything in somebody so you can make almost anything positive okay and you guys can look that up using duckduckgo it's all true so um so you the first definition according to the CDC and FDA for what counts as a positive covid case is you have a flu or cold symptom and you have um, a positive test on the um, on a PCR test, which is, has been proven to be faulty based on how they're using it to justify COVID-19 as a pandemic. Now, here's the second uh, definition of COVID-19 according to the FDA and the CDC. As backed up, by the FDA document in the Pfizer briefing for EUA approval. So the second definition, if the first one wasn't enough, the second definition to be counted as a COVID-19 case is, for a secondary efficacy endpoint, a second definition, which may be updated as more is learned about COVID-19, including the following additional symptoms defined by CDC listed on their website. Here are the secondary definitions that count as COVID-19. You have fatigue. You have headache. You have nasal nasal congestion or runny nose. You have nausea. Okay, cold and flu symptoms. For another secondary endpoint, the case definition for a severe COVID-19 case was a confirmed COVID-19 case with at least one of the following. So a second definition for a severe COVID-19 case was a confirmed COVID-19 case with at least one of the following below. So if it has one of the following definitions below, it counts as COVID-19. Okay, I I wanna make that really, really clear. For a a secondary endpoint, the case definition for a severe COVID-19 case was confirmed COVID-19 with at least one of the following. And here is the secondary definition of what the CDC and the FDA is counting as COVID that as can be counted as COVID-19 during the pandemic. Clinical signs of breath indicated of severe systemic illness. RR is greater or equal to 30 breaths per minute. HR is greater or equal to 125 beats per minute. SP oxygen is um, less than 93% on room air at sea level or PA oxygen, FI oxygen is less than 300 mmHg. So basically you're having some, you know, some severe breathing problems. All right, that, that would count as COVID-19 according to the CDC. Let's go further on what else counts as COVID-19 according to the CDC and FDA. Respiratory failure defined as needing high flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, or ECMO. Okay, so if you, they put you on a ventilator. Okay, now you count as a COVID-19 case. Here's another definition. Evidence of shock. SBP is less than 90 mmHg. DPP, DBP is less than 60 mmHg or requiring vasopressors. So. Basically, somebody who's in major shock, they're in major shock, that that would count. Here's another definition of what constitutes as COVID-19 during the pandemic, according to FDA and CDC. Significant, acute, renal, hepatic, or neurological dysfunction. Okay. So if they have any one of those symptoms, for whatever reason, neurological dysfunction, renal, acute, renal, or hepatic issues, that counts as COVID-19. Here's the last two definitions, according to the CDC and FDA, written in the Pfizer briefing document for approval, EUA approval of the COVID-19 vaccine. Again, I'm going to read again. For a secondary endpoint, the case definition for a severe COVID-19 case was a confirmed COVID-19 case with at least one of the following. And here's the last two definitions of what the CDC and FDA counts as COVID-19. Admission to an ICU. Remember me and state that. Admission to an ICU. If you have been admitted to an ICU, that one factor alone counts you as a COVID-19 case, according to the definitions by the CDC and FDA documents. Maybe you went there because of an accident. Maybe you got in a car accident. Maybe you went there because you're pregnant or you're having a baby. There's a lot of ways in which people go to the ICU and they could be there for a lot of other comorbidities mobilities and other health issues um, that they are struggling with. But if they were admitted to ICU, regardless of any of the things that they come to the ICU for, that one factor can be counted as COVID-19. Here's the last definition, according to the CDC and the FDA's documents on their website of what constitutes as a secondary endpoint case definition for a severe COVID-19 case. Death. That's it. Death. That's all it says. If you died in the hospital of anything, you could be counted as COVID-19. Death. Death and admission to ICU. It's written on page 14 of the Vaccine and Related Biological Product Advisory Committee briefing on December 10, 2020 by Pfizer to get EUA approval of their experimental mRNA vaccine and push it to the public to overcome a pandemic of SARS-CoV-2 onto the public from 2020 to 2021. Um, And these are the parameters that justified the whole pandemic and what constitutes as COVID-19, admission to ICU or death. It doesn't matter what the parameters, you can count it as that. So now, the information the facts are even more interesting you had like in the United States 600,000 people who uh, died of COVID-19 and I've shown you that the FDA um, approved remdesivir which accelerated those deaths and majority of those deaths could have been saved it could have been you know, maybe like 80, some of the sensor doctors, I think Dr. Peter McCulloch in one interview said 80% of them could have been saved if given ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine that has shown to be successful early in their their treatment. They could have been saved. So instead of 600,000, it it would have been maybe 20% of that would have been actual COVID-19 fatalities. But regardless of that, the count numbers according to the CDC and FDA documents, show that a simple admission to ICU or death counts as COVID-19 as well. So, How many of these numbers that they count as COVID-19 to justify the p- pandemic are actually COVID-19? Because the FDA documents and the CDC documents they, um, say that anything can count. Basically, so let's let's go down and look at another aspect of this legal government document and please print it and save it for yourself in case for whatever reason it's, it get the page is lost on the Internet. Um, so one of the things that's very interesting about this document is that all SAEs so you, Severe adverse events in subjects are not covered as a result of the vaccine because the percentage does not exceed natural occurrence outside the trials. Even if the subject had a clean medical history prior to getting the jab, so I want you, I want you guys to really understand that if the recipients in the trial even if they had a completely clean bill of health before they um, they got it they uh if they develop any kind of illness afterwards it's not related just so you know because the reason why they justify it as that is because um if the percentage of occurrence of that illness outside of the trials if the percentage is up to that and not higher then they're like well it could have happened in nature on its own that person could have just developed that on their own because there's no Different than if than the percentage of people in the society developing that specific adverse reaction or that specific illness on their own. And so, because during the trials, if the person um, develops a specific illness or is severely injured after the after getting the the vaccine, the the gene therapy, um, it's not related because the numbers is not far higher than what was uh, reported outside of the trials. That's the justification for why they keep saying it's not related to the jab. It's not related to the jab. I'm going to show you that as well. So it's actually on. I'm going to read some of this. So I'm going to go to page six now. So page six. I'm going to. I highlighted some parts to read to you guys. Proposed use under an EUA is for active immunization for the prevention of COVID-19 caused by SARS-CoV-2 in individuals 16 years of age and older. The proposed dosing regimen is two doses, 30 micrograms each, administered 21 days apart. So that's that's the basic premise for administration. Um. I'm going to read this this part on page six. The most common solicited adverse reactions were injection site reactions, 84.1%, fatigue, 62.9%, headache, 55.1%, muscle pain, 38.3%, chills, 31.9%, joint pain, fever, 14.2% adverse severe adverse reactions occurred at zero to 4.4% of participants were more frequent after dose two than dose one. So just that's very critical for you to understand. So up to 4.6% of the human trials participants, uh, had developed severe adverse reactions, meaning life-threatening illnesses or issues, after the second dose. Not necessarily the first dose, the second dose. So up to 4.6% of the human trials developed life-threatening severe adverse reactions after the second dose. Um, And we're generally less frequent in participants 55 years of age, so 2.8%. So if you're 55 years and older and you got the second jab, 2.5% of that group will develop life-threatening severe adverse reactions. So younger participants had a higher rate of developing severe life-threatening adverse reactions compared to the 55 or older group. Um, as compared to younger participants, 4.6%. The frequency of severe adverse events was low, 0.5%, without meaningful balances between study arms. Among non-serious, unsolicited events, there was a numerical imbalance of four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine group compared to no cases in the placebo group. So even in the trials, they found um four cases of people who developed bell's palsy in the vaccine group but they didn't develop in the placebo group however if you read through this data they keep saying over and over again oh because the percentage is not higher than what occurs naturally outside of the trials it's not linked even if the person never had bell's palsy before they're likely going to get it anyways that's the full premise of it's not related it's going to happen anyways because it's not higher than what's naturally occurring in nature so um And I find this interesting that they call the incidence of the four Bell's palsy cases a non-serious, unsolicited adverse event. So Bell's palsy is not serious, according to Pfizer. uh, I found that interesting. Let's go to another page. Page nine. So I highlight some parts for you guys to really look at. So the effectiveness, so page nine, I'm going to read this part to you guys. Effectiveness data. In of an EUA requires a determination that the known and potential benefits of the vaccine outweigh the known and potential risk. For a preventive COVID-19 vaccine to be potentially administered to millions of individuals, including healthy individuals, data adequate to inform an assessment of the vaccine's benefits and risks and support ensuance of an EUA would include include meeting the pre-specified success criteria for the study's primary efficacy endpoint as described in the guidance for in, industry entitled so um, so they're like oh it has to be effective if we're going to approve this so far they have been improving vaccines or Um, medications that aren't proving to be successful. They have been proving that. And then the ones that were successful, they were disapproving it. So, and we've already shown that fact. Let's go to page 10. So phase three follow-up. Okay, this is, I'm highlighting the important parts. So phase three follow-up. Data from phase three studies should include a medium follow-up duration of at least two months after completion of the full vaccination regimen to help provide adequate information to assess the vaccine's benefit role profile. Did you hear that? Two months, only two months of monitoring for safety in human trials was given before the EUA use was given. Two months of actual observation on the trial participants on the human trial participants it states it right there from a safety perspective a two month medium fo- medium follow-up following completion of the full vaccination regimen will be allowed identification of potential adverse events that were not apparent in the immediate post vaccination period adverse events considered. Plausibly linked to vaccination generally starts within six weeks of vaccine recipient. Therefore, a two month follow up period may allow for identification of potential immune mediated adverse events that began within six weeks of vaccination. From the perspective of vaccine efficacy, it is important to assess whether protection mediated by early responses has not started to wane. A two month Median follow-up is the shortest follow-up period to achieve some confidence that any protection against COVID-19 is likely to be more than short-lived. So again, the are stating that two months is the shortest follow-up period to achieve some confidence. So they use the shortest follow-up period to observe um, the verse events, and life-threatening issues on the human trials before they uh, pitched it to the FDA and FDA approved the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine. Two months. That's the fact. That is a fact. The EUA requested, request should include a plan for active follow-up for safety, including deaths, hospitalizations, and other serious or clinically significant adverse events among individuals administered the vaccine under an EUA in order to inform ongoing benefit risk determinations to support continuation of the EUA. So in short there, uh, in order to continue EUA emergency use authorization for the um, mRNA vaccines, they have to continue to be safe. Um let me go to another part. Okay, here's, so I'm, I'm highlighting certain parts, but you guys can print this out and read it all yourself. I, I I encourage you to print it out and read it and highlight it yourself so you can make up your own mind. Um, so here's another part I highlighted. Some developers have proposed maintaining binding in a crossover design that provides vaccine to previous placebo recipients and placebo to previous vaccine recipients. So they were talking about maybe swapping to kind of see the effectiveness of that. Let's go to page 11. Based on the totality of scientific evidence available, it is reasonable to believe that the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine may be effective in preventing COVID-19 in individuals 16 of age or older, and the known and potential risks of the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine outweigh its known and potential risks for use in individuals 16 years of age or older. So, um, right there, they they're saying that that. They didn't really fully test it on anybody under 16 years of age. So why are they trying to push this experimental vaccine on children? And the FDA approves it. Okay, let's go to here. Another part. The vaccine contains a nucleoside modified messenger RNA, mod RNA. Encoding the viral spike glycoprotein protein S of sars cov OK? I mean, let me repeat that, you guys. It's in the FDA document, page 11, down on section four. The vaccine contains a nucleoside-modified messenger RNA encoding the viral spike glycoprotein protein S. Of SARS CoV 2, meaning the document says, and actually told the FDA, hey, the vaccine we're going to give people has the spike protein in it. Okay. And then they're going to develop spike proteins in their body because that's going to protect them from the spike protein of COVID 19, SARS CoV 2. Okay. And spike proteins have shown in the vaccine injured and in people that it is and even in the animal studies uh, if you go through the Pfizer animal um, studies and my episode on that goes through it very in detail that document from Pfizer that the spike protein was not healthy for the animal trials they actually killed them or seriously impaired them okay but here we are Pfizer saying that hey our vaccine We'll we'll be using nucleoside modified messenger RNA um, that encodes the viral spike glycoprotein. Okay, so we're gonna give spike proteins to people, all right? Um, And then they're gonna create antibodies against the spike protein. And they're gonna continue to create more and more spike protein. And these people who get the vaccine are going to be basically a manufacturing plant of spike proteins. Because it's now in their DNA cell structure. Okay, um, the vaccine also includes the following ingredients: lipids, four hydrobutoxanide, and then this hexane 2 um, polythene glycol. Uh, this and they just have a bunch of funky numbers. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't read them, but. Um, and then potassium chloride, monos basic potassium phosphate, sodium chloride, dibasic sodium phosphate dehydrate, and sucrose. So bunch of information that if you guys want to, I really recommend you do this. You highlight the word that you don't know, to, to, um, and go into to DuckDuckGo and define it, and then you read more about it. Um, but The basic point in that paragraph is that the vaccine gives spike proteins to people and then they could become a manufacturer. Guess what? It's true. The FDA document actually says it. Uh, Let's go down. Okay. After dilution, the multiple dose vials must be stored between 2 Celsius to 25 Celsius and used within six hours of time of dilation. So, you know, And then, of course, it is administered intramuscularly in a series of two 30-microgram doses, 21 days apart. And that's how they would administer it. Here's another highlighted paragraph. In phase one, two groups were evaluated in separate cohorts, younger participants, 18, through 55-year-olds, and older participants 65- through 85-year-olds. The study population included healthy men and women and excluded participants at high risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection, or with serological evidence of prior or current SARS-CoV-2 infection. Two different vaccine candidates are evaluated, and younger participants receive escalating doses, dose levels with progression to subsequent dose levels and evaluation of escalating those levels in the older age groups, 65 to 85 years, based on recommendations from an internal review committee that reviewed safety and immunogenicity data. Okay, so those are the two age groups that they, the the younger the younger age group, 18 to 55, and then 65 to 85. 12 participants received the vaccine candidate and three participants received placebo. And what happened? In phase two, three, the participants were enrolled with stratification by age. Uh, Younger adults, 18 to 55 years old, older adults over 55 years of age and a goal of 40% enrollment in the older adult age group. Adolescents were added to the protocol based on review of safety data in younger adults enrolled in the ongoing study. So the age strata were revised as follows, 12 through 15 years of age, 16 through 54 years of age, and 55 years of age and older. The study population for phase 2-3 includes participants at higher risk of acquiring COVID-19 and at higher risk of severe COVID-19 disease, such as participants working in the healthcare field, participants with autoimmune disease, and participants with chronic but stable medical conditions such as hypertension, asthma, diabetes, and infection with HIV, hepatitis B, or hep C. Participants were randomized one-to-one to to receive two doses of of either BNT162b2 or placebo 21 days apart. The Phase two portion of the study evaluated reactogenicity and immunogenicity for 360 participants enrolled early on. And these participants also contributed to the overall efficacy and safety data in the phase three portion. The ongoing phase three portion of the study is evaluating the safety and efficacy of BNT162B2 for the prevention of COVID-19 disease occurring at least seven days after the second dose of the vaccine. efficacy is being assessed throughout a participant's follow-up in the study through surveillance for potential cases of COVID-19. If at any time a participant develops acute respiratory illness, an illness visit occurs. Assessment for illness visits include a nasal uh, swab, which is tested at a central laboratory using a reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction (PCR) test, or other suvis- sufficiently validated nucleic acid amplification-based tests, or NAAT, to detect SARS-CoV-2. So, um, so that basically describes that you know they're going to be testing them to see if they develop. SARS-CoV-2. Now, if you remember the episode previous where I go over the Pfizer document and the animals, um, all the animals, within about two years, developed the spike proteins in their bodies, and they did develop SARS-CoV-2 in their bodies. And um, it didn't work out so so well for them. Um, Page 14 here. Went back to this one again. So some things to note. COVID-19 confirmed at least 14 days after dose two. COVID-19 incidents per 1,000 person years to follow up in participants either without or with and without serological or virological evidence of past SARS-CoV-2 infection before or after vaccination regimen cases confirmed. So that's interesting. Let's go to the next next one. Okay. Um, reactose genicity data from a total of one hundred adolescents. 12 to 15 years of age, enrolled in C4591001, Phase 2 and 3, were provided in the EUA submission. However, the sponsor did not request inclusion of this age group in the EUA because the available data, including number of participants and follow-up duration, were insufficient to support favorable benefit-risk termination at the time. Therefore, the reactogenicity data for participants 12 to 15 years of age are not present in this document. So let me let me clear that up real quick to you guys. They tried to, to give it to people under 16 to the next age group, which is 12 to 15. And um, the data that they got from the 12 to 15 age group that they administered the mRNA vaccine to um, was not good. It was so bad that it would throw off the efficacy and the 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 success claims of the vaccine that they even state right here that they did not add it because it was it was insufficient to support a favorable benefit risk determination okay so they threw out the data and they didn't include the data because it wasn't good, and it wasn't good to show the efficacy. So, um, why is the F- FDA recommending that children 12 and under get vaccinated and trying to make this a mandate as part of school programs? If they didn't really fully test anybody under 12, and the ones that they tried to do it to, they didn't have good data because it didn't support. Um, the vaccine being successful. It says right there in the document. Um, let's go to page 16. Okay, so I'm going to read this over to you. Potential COVID 19 illnesses and their sequel were not to be reported as AEs, adverse events, with the exception of illnesses that met regulatory criteria for ser- seriousness and were not confirmed to be COVID 19. These illnesses were evaluated and reported as SAEs, se- severe adverse events. In phase two and three, monitoring for risk of vaccine enhanced disease was performed by an unblinded team supporting the Data Monitoring Committee that reviewed cases of severe COVID-19 as they were received and reviewed AEs, adverse events, at least weekly for additional potential cases of severe COVID-19. The stopping rule was triggered when the one-sided probability of observing the same or more extreme case split was 5% or less than the true incidence of severe disease was the same for vaccine and placebo participants. And alert criteria were triggered when this probability was less than 11. So there it states right there that COVID breakthrough cases are not counted as averse events. And non-COVID illnesses um, after the vaccine are SAEs, serious adverse events. So there you have it right there. So um, even in here on the very bottom is where it talks about the placebo, alert criteria were triggered when probability was less than 11%. So anyways, in, in short, the vax versus unvax, the vaccinated versus unvaccinated has the same infection rate with COVID, but without serious adverse events in the vaccinated. So let me repeat this again real quick. In phase two and three, monitoring for risk of vaccine-enhanced disease was performed by unblinded teams supporting the data monitoring committee that reviewed cases of severe COVID-19 as they were received and reviewed adverse events, at least weekly or additionally, potential cases of severe COVID-19. The stopping rule was triggered when the first one-sided probability of observing the same or more extreme case case split was 5% or less when the true incidence of severe disease was the same for the vaccine and placebo participants. Okay, and we're finding this out that even in the trials and even in what's going on right now with the Delta variant that the vaccinated have the same rate of infection practically as the unvaccinated so the vaccine doesn't prevent them from getting covid-19 being it doesn't do what it's supposed to do which is prevent from getting covid-19 or to reduce the severity of getting a serious adverse event from getting covid-19 okay so they have the same rate and it even says right here on page 16 that the it is the same for the vaccine and the placebo participants. So they are. We're finding out that the trials are pretty much indicative of what's going to happen in EUA and in the in the market. It hasn't deviated. So let's go into more of this, this legal document from the FDA. Um, uh, phase two and three all enrolled. Population composed of a total of 43,448, which is 21,720 of the vaccine, and 21,728 of the placebo group. Okay. Phase 2 and 3, safety population, median follow-up time of two months after vaccination number 2, comprised of a total of 37,586, which is 18,801 of the vaccine group and 18,785 of the placebo group. So, just in short, they had roughly 44,000 participants in the human trials in early 2020. And um, they broke it down about half. Half of them got the vaccine, quote, quote, vaccine. The other half got the placebo. Um, and again, they reinstate that the only follow-up time for observation for long-term, serious, life-threatening, averse reactions was only two months. Two months. Two months is the amount of time that they observed to determine that it was safe for people. To put um, a vaccine in the body that, according to document, creates spike proteins that they are inserting the S gene using lipid nanoparticles in the vaccine into people. It says it right there on the document. Page 17. Because of the gap in enrollment, the entire study population had a median follow-up of less than two months as of the EUA submission data cutoff of November 14, 2020. However, the analysis submitted to support this EUA request met the expectations for median duration of follow-up. So, there, again, reiteration that they had less than two months of observation for life-threatening adverse events to Develop in the vaccine group, but that is enough. That is the very minimum amount of time for a clinical trial to be submitted for EUA. So that's fine. And that's what what they're saying there. And remember in the earlier pages, they said for the group under 55 years of age, um, within that two month time frame that they were observing the trial participants on the vaccinated group, zero to 4.6%, so up to 4.6% of the vaccinated group are going to develop life-threatening adverse events um, from the data of only two months. Okay, so 95% of the population that got the vaccine are gonna be fined for the first two months. And this cutoff was in November in order to submit it for EEA approval. So really it only had six months of data. The so 95% of the population is thinking that, oh, I, I'm not part of that 4.6%. I'm fine. They only have six months of data to show the um, efficacy and the safety. And the safety was really only done by two months. And if you guys remember, on page 15, let me go back to it. The safety policy. Where did you get these numbers? These numbers, the follow-up period is based off the Pfizer animal trials. So they only have six months of actual data before they submit the eway. So according to figure one, page 15 of the safety monitoring plan, they expect to follow up on all subjects for serious adverse events within six months after the second dose. But then the follow-up after that is a two-year follow-up for all subjects to see if they died or developed serious adverse events within two years after the second dose. Not the third dose or the fourth dose or any of the boosters after that, only second dose. They don't have any safety information for, for people who got boosters after the second dose. And now the FDA is recommending and improving boosters with absolutely no trial evidence of what happens to the participants after two doses. So there's no evidence for boosters for its safety. And there's no evidence for um, pregnant women because they weren't in in the trials and no evidence for under 12 because the information that they had had gotten was not good. It was bad data. Um, They were not successful with with children. And here they are, the FDA is approving it for children.